The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Zuckerberg unhinged. We've got the latest on the big tech hearings. He goes off script. He takes a page from Tom Keene. He rips the script, blasts Apple and Google in the testimony before the House of Representatives. Ben Brody, Bloomberg's tech policy reporter, the Bloomberg tech policy reporter. He's going to kick things off for us so we know exactly what happened up on Capitol Hill today. Plus, the Fed sticks with whatever it takes. No signs of virus easing. Jay Powell, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, delivering comments. I will dive into the policy on that front with Joe Crowley, former New York congressman and Democratic caucus chair, and Amos Sneed. He's back, executive vice president of Adfero, strategic communication strategic communications firm in D.C. He's a former spokesperson and press secretary for then House Republican whip Roy Blunt. Plus, my exclusive interview with Congressman Denver Riggleman, the Republican representing Virginia's 5th District. He's been in the news lately. Want to check in? We have a lot, I have a lot to catch up with Congressman Riggleman on. Uh, and two other exclusives with Steph Feldman, the Biden policy advisor, about whether or not Joe Biden wants to end fracking. And Mercedes Schlapp, senior advisor to the Trump campaign on President Trump's um, President Trump's trip to Texas. So we've got an all-star show filled with some greats. Uh, we're going to get wonky. We're going to keep it general. Did you hear about the big tech hearings? Mark Zuckerberg unhinged. That's the headline on the Bloomberg terminal that he, he goes off script. And and just started blasting some of the other big tech companies. Ben Brody was all over the reporting today. Bloomberg Tech lobbying reporter. Ben, give me your top takeaways from the big tech hearings up on Capitol Hill. Uh, Zuckerberg definitely did go a little bit rogue. He called out some of the other CEOs that he was uh, testifying with from Apple, Google, Amazon. Basically said, they're our competitors. You can't say that we're violating antitrust laws because we're competing against them very robustly and in all of these different places. Uh, The Democrats came right back at him. They've uh, obtained documents, including emails that he had with uh, other executives, and they read his words back to him and said, were you trying to undermine competition when you bought this company? Were you, uh, you know, trying to take profits from uh, discrimination on your platform? All that kind of thing. All right. And then the other big story that emerged was this issue of the coronavirus and how Google was removing some conspiracy theories. Obviously, it opens up some national security concerns and balance that with some First Amendment concerns. Is anything going to be done from a policy standpoint to to balance, to find that balance? 
I think in terms of the coronavirus concerns, there seems to be sort of contentment that the Democrats are going to leave that uh, to the platforms to decide what they're going to do uh, to kind of uh, go for uh, local public health authorities and and take their cues from them. Uh, But I do think on the antitrust side of it, uh, they are moving forward with this report. They do want to recommend changes to strengthen antitrust law. Uh, And I think particularly if Democrats are in control in Congress next year, uh, those recommendations could really gain some ground. And what was this? Mark Zuckerberg accused of cloning apps to threaten rivals? Wow. Yeah, so uh, the basic idea is when uh, Zuckerberg wanted to purchase Snapchat or when he wanted to purchase Instagram, uh, before he went and sat down with the CEOs, he would start to develop uh, kind of the features that you have on those apps. And then he would go to the meetings and he would say, look, uh, I want to acquire you guys here, the prices and the terms I'm thinking about. Uh, But I just want you to know, uh, you know, if these conversations don't go that well, we're basically trying to uh, copy you and bring it onto our platform. Uh, So just think about that while you're while you're making this deal. And they basically took that as threats that they would be driven out of business if they didn't uh, sell themselves. What was the line from that Aaron Sorkin movie? What was it, Ben? If you if you would have invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Remember that? Remember that? Somebody, something like that, yeah. You know, Ben Brody, you've been all over the story for us. Ben Brody, Bloomberg Tech Lobbying reporter. Can you give us a timeline just quickly on when the next piece of legislation or the next phase of this, or was it just a lot of political theater today? Uh, no, uh, uh, come the fall, September, October, I do uh, anticipate those recommendations to strengthen antitrust law. Uh, and then it'll, of course, go into next year, uh, what happens with that. All right, Ben, thanks for checking in with us. And now switching gears, earlier today, I caught up with the Joe Biden policy advisor, advisor for his campaign, that's Steph Feldman. And I asked her about Joe Biden's infrastructure plan, and in particular, about 5G. Take a listen. It couldn't be more important, and it's a cornerstone of the Biden plan, because so much of federal investment goes to just the biggest cities, and we really need to deal everyone in on the bargain. So that's why the vice president has a number of policies, including uh, Congressman Clyburn's 10-20-30 plan to make sure we get investments into low-income communities, to investments in infrastructure like broadband, uh, which is critical to making sure rural communities are dealt into uh, the bargain here. Steph Feldman joining us. She's the head of the policy uh, apparatus operation inside of the uh, Biden campaign. You know, when I talk to Republicans, uh, so much of what they say and they, they is that the Trump administration was able to negotiate trade deals, uh, particularly with Europe, uh, China, obviously. How would the Biden can, or the Biden administration rather? How would they look at negotiating trade deals, especially with China? Yeah. So I think my big question for people is, um, whom did those trade deals work for? I, President Trump, uh, every chance he has to, when he ha- has a decision between working for the largest multinational corporations or our workers, he picks the largest multinational corporations. So the vice president will put forward a plan that is a pro-American worker tax and trade policy. Uh, Biden will get rid of the go it alone approach on trade that President Trump has pursued, which we know now just doesn't work. Trump's phase one deal with China has simply been a disaster for American workers and farmers, and China's government continues its trade abuses and is failing to live up to its commitments. Biden, on the other hand, believes every trade decision 
must be centered on building the American middle class, creating jobs and raising wages. And he's not going to pick fights with our allies. Instead, he's going to rally our allies to work together and jointly pressure the Chinese government and other trade abusers to follow the rules and hold them to account when they do. That's how you make it work for our workers. It's that issue of alliances and rebuilding the alliances. And when I talk to Democrats, that's what I hear all the time is you can't have a go it alone approach when negotiating around the world, especially with Beijing. All right, I want to I want to talk about something very of the moment. So many, so much of what I, I'm covering, uh, Steph, uh, and we talked about this offline. Is is the is the back and forth between Leader McConnell and Speaker Pelosi and the administration? So many small businesses are in dire need of some economic relief. They needed it yesterday, quite honestly, uh, to to help rebuild uh, this economy. Unfortunately, it's the underserved communities, it's minority communities who have really taken a hit during the the shutdown, the COVID shutdown. And how would Joe Biden, how would President Biden try to make sure that these small businesses have access to liquidity, access to capital immediately so that they can stay open? Yeah, that's just so important, and I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk about it. Biden knows that small businesses are the backbone of our economy, and he won't allow this crisis to inflict further economic pain on working families and communities of color in particular. Just a few weeks ago, Biden put forward a plan to help small businesses get through this crisis, including by providing what we're calling an ambitious restart package that provides small business owners support for retaining and rehiring workers, as well as for covering fixed costs. It also provides grants for businesses to cover the costs of restarting in this challenging environment, which includes things such as supplies, personal protective equipment, plexiglass to use as a barrier to reduce transmission risk. Yesterday, Vice President Biden rolled out a racial economic equity plan that accelerates his investments in small businesses. This includes a special ongoing initiative to empower especially entrepreneurs of color to succeed and grow. One of the big pieces here is a more than $50 billion investment in additional public-private venture capital to Black and Brown entrepreneurs. So we are seeding the entrepreneurs of the future and making sure that we're investing in all communities. Lastly, I I want to talk about energy. I know that this was a a, a rollout uh, over the past couple of days, and it's been something that you're focusing on. Your critics, the, the Republicans, uh, would say they're trying to lump the Biden energy propose, proposal uh, into the Green New Deal and, and, and saying it is very far left. What, would, what is the Biden energy plan, number one? And secondly, is it uh, the, the Green New Deal? So this one, I want to be really clear on. There are a lot of uh, lies being said about the vice president's climate plan. First, on fracking, I want to be clear. It just is not true that Biden is supporting a ban on fracking. He does not want to shut down the fracking industry. What he wants to do is ban new leases on public lands. But in nine, about 90% of fracking is done on private lands anyways. Uh, it, the, Biden does have his own plan, uh, which we rolled out at the beginning of his campaign and then expanded just a few weeks ago. This is a plan that got support from labor. It got support from the Electrical Workers Union and the Auto Workers Union. It also got support from the Sierra Club and the League of Conservation Voters. You don't see anyone else getting that type of support across the table um, from both labor and environmentalists on a climate policy. That's probably unprecedented for such a big climate practice package. But that's the magic of Vice President Biden. He is able to bring everyone to the table and come up with a smart strategy. His plan is to reduce to achieve net zero greenhouse gas, gas emissions economy-wide by 2050 with some big near-term milestones to make that happen and big investments. Because when he thinks climate, he really thinks this is our job creation strategy. 
That was Joe Biden's senior policy advisor, Steph Feldman, and she runs all the policy arm uh, in there. It was her first interview. Uh, And coming up, we're going to check in with Mercedes Schlapp, senior advisor to the Trump campaign. So we're going to now play that interview portion uh, on on their policies, because that's what we try to do. We're we're trying to stick to policy a little bit uh, and get both sides the opportunity to make their case so you can decide. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And President Trump traveling to Texas today for a campaign stop, but also to tout energy policy. Someone who knows a thing or two about energy policy, given her work in the dating back to the Bush administration, is Mercedes Schlapp, who is now, of course, on the president's re-election campaign after having previously served as the White House Director of Strategic Communications in the administration. Mercedes, thanks for joining us. Kevin, you're making me feel old. How are you? Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, not at all. Dating back. At least I'm not dating back to the Reagan years or something like that. That would have, you know. You know, you're category. experienced. You're experienced. All right, there what... you go. It's fun. I've got the gray hair to, to prove it. So there you go. <laughs> I want to start with uh, the president's energy policies because you know this. I mean, the president, the the energy sector has taken a whack from not just the coronavirus, but the developments overseas with Saudi Arabia. What is the president uh, saying today about trying to provide some certainty for the energy sector? Well, I got to tell you, President Trump has focused since day one to achieve energy independence in the United States, uh, and, and he's been able to accomplish that, which is a big accomplishment. The way he got there was by cutting regulations and simplifying the permitting process, as well as encouraging private investment in energy infrastructure. And for many of these states, including Texas, this, this, is, this is a priority because the energy industry, it does provide, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs across the board. And he, uh, the president, understands that we have to stay uh, focused on becoming the world leader in and maintaining that status of being the world leader in oil and natural gas production. And what we've seen, for example, with our coal exports exports is that that's increased by 90 percent under President Trump. So we feel very strongly that because of the president's policies and understanding what we needed to do, uh, we've become now the the first time since 1953 a net energy exporter. That's great news for the U.S. That's great news for the American worker. And that obviously is in contrast to Joe Biden's uh, very, what I would say, far left energy policies that we know would devastate many of the businesses in the energy industry. I want to talk about the contrast with the Biden campaign in a second, but just to follow up here on energy policy, the president traveling to Double Eagle Energy. That, of course, is one of the largest crude oil and natural gas exploration developments in the country. Uh, and of course, it operates in the Permian Basin. And, and, and you know, I, I think it's been as you know, for, for the Republican Party, they've always walked this tightrope between ethanol and, and oil. And so uh, both constituencies from a policy standpoint are incredibly crucial. 
uh, for for the Republican coalition. How has the president been able to try to walk that tightrope? And what would a second term look like for both of those uh, for both of those sectors? You know, I think for the most part, when you're talking about energy independence and energy, the energy industry in and of, of itself, we've seen a lot of benefits for these energy companies. Of course, the president wants to make sure that uh, they take this responsibility seriously in, in protecting the environment. That obviously you see, you know, you sometimes watch these ads on television about the work that some of these energy businesses are doing to ensure that we're protecting the environment while at the same time balancing that with the economic needs of our country and, and, and in essence, ensuring that we don't just devastate and destroy the fossil fuel industry, but we are able to also be creative and innovative in this field of clean technology and in ensuring that these companies are taking the necessary steps uh, to keep their workers safe, obviously, and also to protect the environment. So I think the president understands that there needs to be that balance on both sides. And so it's why, uh, you know, he has continued to figure out ways where we're able to roll back these job-killing regulations, uh, allow the companies to do what they need to, to uh, produce the jobs, as well as to increase uh, oil and natural production here in the U.S. At, at the same time with focusing on what else we can do in the energy sectors that would promote alternative energy as well. And so much of this just uh, in the geopolitical space, just impacted by overseas developments. Oil prices were up this morning, we should note. Uh, you mentioned the Biden campaign. Uh, and, and, you know, when I talk to sources in the Biden campaign, Mercedes, they, they say, no, it's not, it's not as far left as AOC. It's not, it's not the new Green Deal. But, you know, I take it that, that this is a contrast that you want to have. And on this issue, uh, you really want to have it uh, heading into November. Yeah, I mean— I've actually, you know, seen some of these interviews, too, where they kind of take five steps back. So, but the problem is, as you know, is the enormous amount of pressure that Joe Biden has right now to shift to the far left. Uh, it's why he signed the uh, unifying platform, that unity platform, where they launched a war on American America's energy independence, uh, where they're putting high, high levels of restrictions for uh, those failing to hold uh, you know, these, these companies accountable. Their focus and goal is to mandate these net, net zero carbon emissions from homes, offices, and all new buildings by 2030. And uh, we know that th it's just unrealistic expectations. And so for them to backpedal, uh, the Biden campaign to backpedal on these issues of fracking or natural gas or where they stand, we know that Joe Biden stands with the far left, left on promoting the Green New Deal. Uh, he made that uh, decision when he signed his life away to this unity platform uh, that, and this unifying agenda that, that we know Sanders is pushing forward. I mean, you're talking to the point that it, where, where he's going in terms of putting burdensome regulations on the energy industry, uh, as well as increasing taxes, which we know would lead to tax increases for 82 percent of Americans and and killing these uh, close to 585,000 jobs is a very problematic for the American worker. It's destructive to the energy industry when he started talking about the clean energy initiative that he uh, promoted. And, and again, I think it's just an unrealistic implementation of these plans that would cost taxpayers, uh, you know, a lot of money to implement this far left 
agenda. All right. And just finally, you know, the, this is the president's 16th, 16th visit as president uh, to, to Texas. Uh, this is a state he carried uh, by nine percentage points over uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016. By the way, uh, speaking speaking of, he was in Midland, and that's where George W. Bush met, was born and raised, and met his wife, Laura. But yeah, I look at these polls. I know you're going to tell me we have different polls. I get it. I get it. But the polls show that Texas is is tightening. I mean, what do you uh, is Texas in danger of going blue? From your you're you're at the HQ for for the reelection campaign, right? Well, I mean, our internal polls uh, here in the campaign show the president a very strong position in Texas. I'm going to say, though, we are not going to take any voter for granted. Our goal is to continue a strong outreach in many of these targeted states. Obviously, our goal is to defend the states that the president won, in addition to expanding into states that we lost by very narrow margins. For example, Maine, where we won one congressional district, lost the other. New Hampshire, where we lost by 2,700 votes. Nevada that we lost by two points. So we feel that we can gain ground uh, in these states. We have invested a significant amount of resources and staffing on the ground. I last week was in both New Hampshire and Maine and for a Women for Trump bus tour and seeing the the organized volunteers in these states was impressive. So our ground game is one that I've, I've worked on several presidential campaigns. It's the strongest I've seen. So we're not going to take any vote for granted as my uh, as our campaign manager, Bill Stepping, has said, this is going to be a drag-out fight till the end, and we're going to play like we're the underdogs. And I think if we put ourselves in that position and just uh, continue to aggressively campaign, uh, we will be victorious come November 3rd. That was Mercedes Schlepp. Uh, she, of course, is the uh, over on the president's re-election campaign and a D.C. insider. Coming up next, we check in with our all-star political panel and Congressman Denver Riggleman. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 991. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Mark Zuckerberg goes to Washington. Did it all go according to plan? The latest from the big tech CEOs testifying on Capitol Hill plus Fed Chair Jay Powell has some news for the coronavirus and the economy. All of that, plus we check in with Congressman Denver Riggleman, Republican from Virginia. He's been in the news lately, folks. We got a lot to talk about, the congressman and I, and me, and me, and uh, an all-star political panel. You know, we just heard from two insiders on the Biden and Trump campaigns, and now we're going to break down the president's energy speech with Amos Sneed, who, of course, returns to the program after hiding from the Bloomberg Radio Sound On radio show all pandemic he's back he is uh 
executive vice president at Adferro, a strategic communications firm in D.C., and a former spokesperson and press secretary to then-House Republican Whip Roy Blunt, and Joe Crowley, a Bruce Springsteen fan and former New York congressman and Democratic caucus chair. He's going to give us... Uh, what what is the compass right now of Joe Biden's economic policy? Is it AOC or is it the centrist? I'll ask him. Let's kick things off with Fed Chair Jay Powell. The Federal Reserve left interest rates near zero and vowed to use all of its tools to support the recovery from an economic downturn that Chair Powell called the most severe, quote, in our lifetime. Wow. I mean, you hear it in these terms. I'm reading, of course, from the Bloomberg Terminal. You hear it in these terms and it, it it's... I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's hard to put in perspective the pain that so many the people we all know are, are, are going through in this time. The path forward, Chair Powell continued, the path forward for the economy is extraordinarily uncertain and will depend in large part on our success in keeping the virus in check. Indeed, we have seen some signs in recent weeks that the increase in virus cases and the renewed measures to control it are starting to weigh on economic activity. All right. So, I mean... That was the statement announcing the policy decision that the Federal Open Market Committee repeated prior language that the pandemic poses considerable risks to the economic outlook over the medium term and that the federal funds rate would remain near zero, quote, until it is confident that the economy has weathered recent events and is on track to achieve its maximum employment and price stability goals, end quote. Well, that's where we begin tonight with Amos Sneed, executive vice president uh, of Ad Faro and uh, Republican insider, and Joe Crowley, a former New York congressman and Democratic caucus chair. Cong- Joe, congressman Joe, I mean, I feel like I want to call you Joe. Joe, uh, you know, you hear what the Fed said today in terms of keeping the interest rates near zero for the foreseeable mm-hmm. future. And then I'm checking in with my sources up on Capitol Hill. I mean, they're still worlds apart from getting an economic stimulus deal. And I just wonder if if doing a piecemeal approach is something Speaker Pelosi could get her caucus behind in order to just provide some relief for folks by the end of the week. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Kevin, that you know this notion of doing something piecemeal. Uh, the virus isn't coming at us at a piecemeal rate. It's coming at us whoppingly uh, and unrelentingly. And, you know, the, the, the House passed... Uh, their uh, version of, co- of of CARES 2 or 3 or 4 uh, when it passed the HEROES Act, which was an incredibly, um, you know, voracious bill to attack uh, you know, of a racist virus. And the response has taken 10 weeks by the Republican leadership of the Senate to come out with a bill that doesn't even have the support of the Republican conference in the U.S. Senate. It really is remarkable to show really the fecklessness on behalf of Republican leadership here, not being able to come together or be unified behind a bill uh, and to, to stand uh, you know, strongly behind what uh, Mitch McConnell has presented. But what the Fed chair is saying is that, you know, this is unprecedented, um, the, the effects of this virus on our economy, and the response needs, needs to be unprecedented, I think, as well. And I think that's what the House Democratic leadership and the House Dems have shown by passing the HEROES Act. Amos, what was the strategy behind Senate, Senate uh, Leader McConnell, Senate Majority Leader McConnell, to release a proposal with a good fraction of the Republican caucus in the upper chamber really divided on it? I mean, was it was it intentional or or, not, or was it just this is the reality and we're up against the clock? 
Hey, uh, Kevin, I don't think I ever want to be in a position giving uh, political advice to Mitch McConnell or, or <laughs> me, his team. Me neither. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there had to be some strategy to it. And, and again, as it was rolled out yesterday, you did kind of see in this week, um, you know, Washington kind of looked at it a little awkwardly about how it was rolled out and who will end up negotiating this uh, towards the end. But I think if you look at what Powell's remarks were today, it's something that Congress will keep their eye on as they work towards a deal. And I agree with uh, with Congressman Crowley. I mean, it, it sounds like they are pretty far apart right now. And and so what is it going to take then, Amos? I mean, to follow up there, what is it going to take to to get to garner some of that Republican support? Because it seems that there's a line in the sand for the Democrats, a, a red line in terms of the unemployment benefits and the six hundred dollar extending that to, to the unemployment benefits. And then you've got this additional issue of providing funds to state and local governments. I think it's 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 a it's a couple billion dollars that the that the that the Democrats are calling for and Republicans are just saying, well, the, the, the fiscal or the, the ultra conservative on the economy, Republicans are saying, no, that's too much money. And so I just don't even know. I mean, this is just, this is, this isn't even like we're debating pennies here. They're debating monumental ideological direction of the economy issues. I don't remember ever covering a story quite like this, even during the shutdown. Or covering a story like this that was moving so quickly. I mean, yep. each hour, each day is a completely different news cycle. But I think you're right. I mean, they are complete. There are stark differences between a $3 trillion proposal from Democrats and a $1 trillion counteroff from Republicans. But I think you also have to look at this. You know, we've seen Mnuchin negotiate several of these deals during the Trump presidency. And now you have Meadows up there working with congressional leadership. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, but I think it's going to move a lot faster. But if you're looking at it, I do agree with Congressman Crowley. They are far apart right now, and there are some stark differences. Well, Congressman, who are they negotiating with? I mean, if you're Speaker Pelosi, is she is she negotiating with Leader McConnell, or is she negotiating with Secretary Mnuchin? Are they on the same page? Well, right now, I think the Speaker is negotiating to the American public, quite frankly, <laughs> with her releases and her statements. Um but look, clearly uh, Mnuchin uh, uh, was up uh, uh, with the chief of staff up uh, to Pelosi's office. Um, that's when I had some of their initial conversation. I know they went over to report to the Senate side and couldn't find Mitch McConnell yesterday evening uh, to report back what the results were of that. Um, but I, I do think that there's, they are far apart. There's no question about that. And when I look at, you know, Pelosi has said there'll be, there will be no red lines. She's not drawing any red lines, whether it's on identification uh, or, 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 you know, in terms of covering businesses, in terms of COVID. Um, and at the same time, you know, she has been very strong in terms of the unemployment as well as aid to state and localities. Uh, and it's not just a couple of billion, Kevin. It's in the multiple tens of billions that yeah. the states need. Look at a state like New York that got really hurt badly by the passage of the 2018 uh, tax uh, bill that the president put through uh, that uh, really eliminated deduction of state and local taxes, which hurt New York. And now you add on to that, uh, not helping New York really deal with the COVID crisis. Um, they, can't, they can't declare bankruptcy. Uh, and at yeah. the same time, you have to make cuts or raise taxes enormously. Another, which is, you know, it's, it's hurting both Democrats and Republicans, and that immediately needs to be addressed. Yeah, we're going to have to leave it right there. Stick around because we're going to talk much more about this as well as the big tech hearings with Amos and Joe Crowley. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 
This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Does anyone else think this week is just going so slow? I mean, you know, so much news happening. Uh, joining us on the lot on the line on the panel to help us navigate through these virtual socially distant virtual times that we're all living in is Joe Crowley, former New York congressman and Democratic caucus chair, and Amos Sneed, executive vice president of Adfero, strategic communications firm in D.C. He's former spokesperson and press secretary to then House Republican Whit Roy Blunt. Amos, where have you been? You know, you, you, you're like. You don't come on the show anymore. I said to Barada the other day in the staff meeting, I said, where's, remember Amos Sneed? I said, do you remember that guy who used to always come on and give us his insights? What, whatever happened? Where, where are you? Like in the woods? <laughs> Kevin, I've, I've had the Joe Biden approach to COVID. I've been staying in my house. <laughs> no media interviews. I rarely go outside. There's no, no chance oh. for a snap. That's my plan. Uh, I'm coming to you live right now from Capitol Hill. Only... Wow. Feet away from Call Your Mother Bagels, which I, I heard a plug for during one of the intros. Are they open? They are open for takeout only. Interesting. But all, right, but say, yeah. you know, all right. Well, he's back. He's back. All right. I, I want to talk to you about uh, some some uh, the big story up on Capitol Hill today, which in addition, of course, to the economic stimulus was the big tech hearings. Uh, that had gone on, and, and you have Mark Zuckerberg up there, and it's the, the lead story on the terminal uh, in terms of him going off script and blasting Apple and Google in his testimony. And it's it's really been remarkable. And earlier in the program, gentlemen, we spoke with my colleague Ben Brody, who, of course, is the, the big tech lobbying reporter here at Bloomberg. And he's been all over the story. And his timeline is that come the fall, there could actually be these antitrust regulation recommendations from Capitol Hill. And I'll read now from some of his team's reporting, Kurt Wagner and Alex Webb, quote, during today's testimony before a congressional antitrust panel, Mark Zuckerberg went off script a little bit, at least the script we expected, pointing out how Facebook Inc. lags behind a number of competitors, including Alphabet, Amazon, and Apple. Zuckerberg isn't hesitating to use some sharp elbows, pointing out that Amazon is the fastest growing advertising platform and Google is the biggest. Okay, I want to start with Joe Crowley here because... Joe, I mean, you hear this, and sometimes the the big banks take the approach of, well, we're all just going to fight this battle together against Washington, D.C. <laughs> and big tech, it's everyone for themselves. Wow. It gives a new, uh, new definition of throwing people under the bus here. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Washington can there be a new definition of, role, of, of, uh, of, of throwing someone under the bus. Go ahead. And the other thing I can I can figure is that Amazon, Google, and Twitter they all hate Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it's like, um, uh, but you know, at the end, Kevin, it is it is, it is something remarkable. And you think about where we are in this world, where you know billions of people around the world have rel- relied upon these platforms for news, information, and for the dissemination of it, and to to speak to each other. You know, it's remarkable what's happened. Um, and I do think that oversight is necessary. I think that what David Cicilline, uh, you know, Jerry Nadler and um, uh, Pramila Jayapal, they were the big three big ones here today. I think they've all have been pretty consistent in terms of really uh, policing 
uh, to some degree, which is the, which is the responsibility of Congress in terms of oversight of this industry. And, and I think they'll take appropriate action, is my sense. And Avis, I mean, just from, you know, you know the energy sector so well, and, and typic- it, it's very atypical. I don't, I can't really think of any other industry where the 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 big companies wouldn't all be speaking from the same playbook and and this has been the trend for for big tech they've been the anomaly where they've all been openly fighting with each other and as my colleagues point out it's because the perception amongst the washington crowd is that the antitrust cases uh, against google and facebook are potentially stronger reading from the bloomberg terminal than the cases against apple and we're just a few months away from policy proposals from chairman cicilline you know who we've had on the program before from him unveiling these types of proposals but wow and then if all that wasn't enough they're getting whacked from the right amos but for uh, for freedom of speech you know, Kevin, as a communication staffer my entire career, you never – it just makes me cringe when I hear the words all script during a congressional testimony because <laughs> usually – that doesn't usually turn out well. But, yeah, I mean, hey, and by the way, props to Ben Brody, one of the best reporters out yeah. there covering the uh, tech policy Lord of the Flies battle we're seeing yeah. right now. Um, but I think all, I think you're right. All of this is positioning for antitrust uh, hearings. And even if you can look at some of Facebook's previous actions, you know, when um, Mark Zuckerberg went on with Dana Perino to make some news on Fox News and they were criticized for using that platform. Um, but all of this is positioning for down the road. But it is very interesting to watch. With You watch financial services industry. You watch the industry industry. Yep. Most of them during these hearings, they'll stand side by side and kind of defend the industry together. That is not the case from what we saw today. No, it's not. And then you've got TikTok trying to go ahead, Joe. No, no, I think he's. I think Amos is absolutely right. You, you know, my, my experience in Capitol Hill is that when when they're all being attacked, they all kind of hunker down together, and that's not in the experience here at all. And and then you get the just how unlike the financial services industry and unlike the energy sector uh it, it, it's you've got apps from all around the world look no further than tiktok which of course has also thrust itself into the spotlight here and and they were going after facebook today uh and 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 you know of course we've all heard about what the president and secretary pompeo have said with regards to tiktok and and raising concerns about china having ownership of tiktok and and the the information sharing as it relates to that i think from a policy standpoint though it's difficult to track this you know unless you're ben brody because he's the reporter covering all this. <laughs> but it's difficult to track this because when will the policy actually be rolled out and if it comes out in the fall it, I, I can't stress this enough. I mean, if you're outside of Washington and trying to figure out just the, the, the policy forecast here, it's going to be incredibly different if there's Democrats controlling both chambers in the White House versus divided government. And so I think really the strategy right now, based upon what I'm told and what I can observe, is fight it out, get to November 3rd, and then let the dust settle. Coming up, we're going to check in with Congressman Denver Riggleman. I'm going to talk all things about that, I guess, a drive through convention the other month. I don't even, I didn't know. I have a lot of questions about that. And, of course, uh, the latest on the economic stimulus. He's going to give us his take on that. Uh, panel says they got to break that conversation down with me. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I've got a lot of questions for our next guest, Congressman Denver Riggleman, a Republican from Virginia. And I just want to get right into it. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, buddy. All right. I got to first ask you about this drive through convention and what the heck happened and and what your future plans are for post November third? Just where where is Denver Riggleman today in relation to that drive through convention from the other month, in which I I guess you, you you lost to some to to your opponent and the and a I I can't call it a primary because it was a conve- a drive through convention. Where was it? Like McDonald's? I don't I still don't really understand. It was in a church parking lot about five minutes from his house. So what happens is is that the committees in Virginia control everything, right? It's not a state-run process. It doesn't have to be. So if a committee member or committee chair doesn't like you, they'll try to do something ridiculous to get you out of there, regardless of how well you're serving, because you, refer, you refuse to pay them off. You refuse to you know, be part of their little clique or their little, you know, little posse that they have. So I'm not much of a guy to kiss anybody's ring. So they 2,500 people disenfranchised a couple hundred thousand, try to get, try to make sure the um, periods where people can sign up is really low. And then after that, try to kick out somebody they don't like. And that's what happened. And so Bob Good, who now is a former Campbell County supervisor and former employee of the Liberty University Athletics Department, uh, he will, I guess, be the, the nomination. What, what are you, what are you planning in terms of your future? Uh, what, what, what are, are you going to go in the private sector? I know you have a small business with your family. But what, where, where is Denver Riggleman in terms of his future? Is there a political future in your, in your I don't, crystal ball? I don't even know if that makes sense. <laughs> well, I think there is. I think there is. And, you know, most people want me to run statewide. And that's really what it comes down to because, you know, I didn't have much of a real election. Um, there wasn't a primary. There wasn't a convention. I sort of got booted out in a Dairy Queen you know, type of scenario. So most people are like, listen, you would have won a primary 80 to 20. You're very popular in the state. Why don't you run for governor? And I'm, I'm sort of considering it. You're, so you heard that here, that, that Congressman Denver Riggleman is considering, in fact, running for governor of Virginia. Would you run as a Republican or would you run as an independent? Well, you know, I'm, you know, it's tough to run as an independent, but I'm pretty independent-minded. And there's certainly a lot of people who would ask that I run as an independent, but I think you got to, it's going to be a hard decision for me. You know, I, real Republican ideals, that's me, but right now the Virginia Republican Party is so broken that I got to make a tough decision. And a lot of that might be, you know, run as a Republican, get the funding, but I'm not much of kissing the ring, run as an independent. Maybe it is time for a third party run. We should see. It's, it's going to be fascinating. And please make sure that, uh, I guess, when would you have to make that decision by? I would say I'm going to make that decision probably by 
I don't know, September, October, September, uh, somewhere right. around that time. Okay. Yeah, and the thing is, is that we're doing so well as a family. You know, Kevin, I just became a grandfather yeah. twice over in the last few weeks. Congratulations, um, twins. Yes. Uh, well, my, I had two daughters pregnant that were due just a week or two apart. Wow. So pretty crazy. Um, our business is doing incredible. My DOD, you know, it's Department of Defense and Counterterrorism, Kevin, so my opportunities are limitless. They were before I came into Congress. I, this didn't make me. You know, this wasn't my career. So it's interesting that a lot of people are like, oh, my gosh, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, the same thing I would have done if I won. I want to sit on my back deck and sip a bourbon, right? This isn't, you know, this, this wasn't my career field, right? This isn't something that I live or die for. This is a service job, and it's me representing 740,000 people that was taken away from me because I refused to be corrupt. I refused to kiss the ring. I refused to commit to supporting anything even close to racism or bigotry. That's what cost me. So now I don't have to do it. You got to want to do it, and I think that's what puts me in a in a unique position. Other people don't don't have the luxury of being able to choose based on service rather than this being a career. It's uh, all right. Well, well, as you weigh that decision, Congressman Denver Riggleman, a Republican from Virginia's fifth congressional district, please, please uh, keep us in the loop because we we want to know exactly what that happens. And I said it, I think on air. When all this went down, uh, you know, it. I think there was a, a publication in Arizona that equated you to, or compared you to a new type of political maverick. So it'll be very fascinating to see where that happens. All right, uh, enough about your political future, and let's talk now about pressing matters of the day because you uh, are wrapped up in these economic negotiations for the stimulus. Are Republicans going to get on board? Are they going to get behind one cohesive message? What has to be done to provide some economic relief? Well, you know, like on the Hill, Kevin, you've been up here for a while. You know, the uh, Senate wants $1 trillion. The House wants $4 million. And the way negotiations have gone up here, it probably will be 1 plus 4 equals 5, right? It'll be $5 trillion. Um, But it's going to be somewhere in between. And I know it's sort of funny, but it's not, right? It'd be funny if it wasn't true. And And it's hard to comprehend the amount of money. I mean, these are such big amounts of money that it's so hard to comprehend. Go ahead. Well, talk about big amounts of money. You know, there's between a half trillion and a trillion dollars that's gone on spent. And that's, and me being a former CEO, you're starting to get conversations up here. Well, money that hasn't been spent in a certain bucket, is that money fungible? Right? Can we transfer that money to another line? So instead of automatically increasing spending in every single line, why don't we look at the money that hasn't been spent and see if that can be reallocated? And I think that idea is really starting to gain some popularity up here. And, you know, I got a question earlier, Kevin, about the stimulus checks and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, um, our Republicans form the stimulus checks are probably one of the least uh, the least of our problems that we have in this bill. Right. As far as compromise is concerned or as far as talking about is concerned, really, it is about that massive gap between four trillion and one trillion dollars. And what what the Democrats want to do in the House and uh, the far left wants to do in the House and what normal individuals want to do everywhere else. So are you confident that there will ultimately be a deal? I am. I mean, you know, there's some things in here that are actually really good, you know, especially when, you know, I originally was on the small business team with Kevin Brady. And, you know, people don't realize, you know, I have a company, you know, Kevin, I had to spend between thirty and $40,000 just to get, just to expand my area uh, outside my distillery, one of my, both of the, my distilleries, just to keep up with the, you know, all the uh, CDC rules and the Virginia workplace rules, right? We've had yeah. to spend, and talk about employee training. I mean, you're talking... I would I would say between sixty and eighty thousand we've spent just to keep open. So 
So, you know, you got wow. workplace tax credits, which are really, really important, right? You got things like that. You got technical changes in the, in, in the checks right now that college-age dependents can now get checks, which last time they sort of fell through the cracks. So there's a lot of good things here. But the, the bad things are, you know, looking at, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars for certain types of aid instead of the money that we already have in place. Um, and that's the thing, too, is, again, we have almost a trillion dollars that has not been spent. Let's reallocate first. Let's actually be smart about this and look at it as a business case rather than throwing taxpayer dollars after dollars that haven't been spent yet. You uh, you uh, are also a member of the uh, China Task Force, which is a group of bipartisan lawmakers who are looking at the uh, policies with regards to U.S.-China relations. Give me an update on where things stand with the China Task Force. Well, you know, a lot of the, the meetings are fantastic. We just um, had a meeting with um, Secretary Esper, you know, Secretary of Defense, Secretary yeah. Esper, and, which was fantastic on a, on, a, on a classified briefing on what's going on with China. But right now my work is really centered on what are we going to do economically about Belt and Road, the Belt and Road Initiative? What are we going to do about hypersonics? What are we going to do about space? You know, I'm on the national security and the technology pillars. I'm the co-chair for each one of those pillars. And, you know, my 26 years background in, in either military, DOD, intelligence space, and and what I did in the critical infrastructure, cyberspace, Kevin, what I've done in non-kinetic warfare, you know, and it's just been a, it's been a lot of fun to be able to apply that. And it's also been a lot of fun. I'll take Kevin out of the 435 in here. I have a unique skill set, right, since I haven't been in politics. I've been able to talk to this in a way a lot of people have. And I think what right. you're going to see in the China Task Force report is a lot of Denver Riggleman generated technical um, recommendations to combat China and to fill in those gaps where we're, we're threatened by them. Can you stick around for a couple more minutes so I can ask you about the Purple Heart uh, Week bill resolution that you're... Yeah, the Purple Star bill, absolutely. All right, so stick around after Trump, but I just want to get you on the record. You heard it here. Congressman Denver Riggleman is seriously... Are you seriously considering a run for governor? Of course. I'm not going to consider it, but I'm not serious about it. But again, I haven't made a final decision because it's a family decision, but I'm seriously considering it, of course. All right. More with Denver Riggleman up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio and Spotify. Panel next, Congressman Riggleman stays. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Panel, still with us, Amos Sneed, Executive Vice President of Ad Faro, a Republican insider. Former Congressman Joe Crowley, he also was the chair of the Democratic caucus and still with us congressman denver riggleman a republican from virginia this is the part gentlemen where you tell me what's on your radar but i'm going to tell uh, what's on my radar is something I, i've always wanted to ask congressman riggleman but i never had enough time and today i thought i am making the time uh and that is on purple star families this is a yeah uh, you and i have talked about this congressman riggleman this is something that impacted your family um Veterans, you have served in in the intelligence community, but Purple Star families, um, veterans who have lost their lives due to their struggle with suicide. And tell me about your resolution and if you feel comfortable, your personal connection to it. 
Sure. The resolution would be that for a week that we would honor the families uh, of those military members uh, that committed suicide. You know, it's the invisible wounds of war. And we had a lot of families that feel completely left out and alone, you know, and so do these members. And as we look at mental health and we look at suicides, I thought this was an appropriate step to make sure that these families that have gone through such hardships, you know, should, you know, be identified as Purple Star families and have a week where we remember those who, you know, died from those invisible wounds. And, and for me, you know, my uncle, um, my uncle committed suicide, you know, he was a, a pilot and, um, you know, back in, in the 70s. And, and I think that I've, I've known that story since I was a kid and everybody never knew why, you know, that that happened. Wow. And, I, and now that I've been around and I was in the military and I've seen some things and done some things and been around the world and have gone through my own trials and tribulations, right, with, with places that I've been and, and things that, that I've seen, um, you want to make sure these families are taken care of. And it's just something so dear to me. I think we have about 70 co-sponsors already. And and boy, wouldn't that be something, you know, to, to recognize those families and, and those and those service members? Yeah. And I think it's we're overdue for a conversation about how to talk about this in this country and how to how to have families and, and those impacted by this pandemic, really, uh, this other pandemic, um, talk about these issues in a way that's compassionate, respectful, and still filled with gratitude. And I, I can't imagine, I appreciate you sharing that story for our audience. And, uh, you know, I, and it, it, it's one of those pieces of, of legislation that it's, it's, it's sometimes you can't talk about things, but sometimes you have to. Uh, Congressman Debra right. Riegelman, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'll give you the final word on this. Oh, no, Kevin, by the way, thank you. That question, I, I love that we're doing that. But I also want to let you know that that question you asked me about running for governor, I think it's just terrified every friend, family, and supporter that I have. So I just want to let you know that uh, I got way I got way out in front of my headlights, and I'm proud to do it. You know, <laughs> you know that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's the magic of Kevin Cirilli, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Congressman so, Dedra Riggleman, I'll talk to you later. Republican from Virginia. Thank sorry. You. Sorry to Riggleman's family yeah, for that, I guess. <laughs> all right, switching gears. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Hey, Joe Crowley, you going to run for Senate? Former New York Congressman and Democratic Caucus Chair. I'm kidding. But what's on your radar, Joe? Joe Crowley, did we lose? I'm here. Yeah, there you go. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. I I just want to address uh, Congressman Riggleman, you know, being on the show. I don't think it's entirely coincidental that maybe I'm on the show at the same time, (laughs) given my own experience. But I will tell you, he's shown a remarkable amount of class just now. And I know the circumstances have been in terms of different from my situation, but it's not an easy thing to lose a House seat, uh, certainly in a primary no matter how that primary shakes out or, or, or is. And uh, hearing him sp- you know, speak about um, those uh, military veterans who come home uh, and face enormous walls and challenges and end up taking their lives, there's not enough talk about it. I salute him for raising this point, especially coming from the Republican side. I think he'll find a lot of partners on the Democratic side. It is an incredibly worthwhile uh, venture to help those families find the dignity that they deserve, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, in terms of what my radar is happening right now, will schools open? Will there be a strike? Mm. Will Major League Baseball continue to play? Or will I there know. be an end to the season? Those are things that are greatly concerning. And, you know, I have a lot of teachers in my family, and, uh, you know, there is this discussion about uh, the accessibility to Major League Baseball players, the tests uh, to ensure a secure environment. Uh, to play baseball COVID-free as best they can, but they don't necessarily feel the, fa- the same uh, emphasis put on their profession and whether or not 
their children, the children that they teach or themselves, they themselves will be free or, or as free as possible from the, uh, uh, the chance of, of, of contamination uh, from COVID and, and contracting uh, the virus. And that has me concerned. That's on my mind, and see what government's response will be to that. I can, you know, I got to, you know, I, and she's going to get very mad at me for what I'm about to say. My sister is a teacher, and and I mean, I, if what is being expected of of, of I, I don't know, but it, it, it's it's you think of the teachers, you think of frontline workers, you think of refinery workers who have to go back to work, and it, it's it, you know, not everyone. I don't know. I'm stuttering, so I think I should probably stop talking. But you got to give them the PPEs. You You have have to to make sure they have an environment which is as safe as possible. Yeah. And right now, if I'm here from teachers in my family, they don't feel enough is being done. But, you know, that's New York City schools, and I don't know what's happening in the rest of the country. It's so important, and and I think especially now as we look, we have to go. And I said this to Tom Keene earlier on Bloomberg Surveillance, we have to go line by line, especially in the media, to, to look at these stimulus bills because we have to see that the that these businesses, these companies, it's not – you can't frame this as a 2008 bailout when we cover it because this fund for the PPE is so crucial. It's so incredibly important just to the psychology of the American worker, to the American teacher, to the American refinery worker. Uh, it, it, it's so important that people show up to work, their parents – they have to be able to feel that their office is safe. And I'm on a soapbox, so I should stop talking. Uh, Amos Sneed, what's on your radar? Uh, the magic of Kevin Cirilli. You have Democrats <laughs> applauding Republican efforts on the same <laughs> program at the same time. You don't get that anywhere else. Um, <laughs> the magic you. of Kevin Didn't Cirilli. you do a hey, book on that? Didn't you write a book hey, like that? What's the book called? Hey, Plug the book, Amos. Oh, my gosh. Look at this. Hey, Climbing the Hill, written yeah. by Amos Sneed and Jamie Harrison. It's a book on um, public service, a, a career in, in public service and politics. Uh, our, our book tour was cut short because my friend Jamie decided to run for Senate from South Carolina. So, um, buy the book. James and, a good uh, man, a great man. Amos is a great man. Yeah, he's, he's good people. Um, good people, and uh, we'll have to get him on your show now that we realize it's a safe ground for bipartisanship. Um, we should have you both on Ke- together. Go ahead, Kevin. Uh, what's on my mind right now? The state of Alabama. The state of Alabama is going to send a former Auburn football coach, a coach that won six straight. Yes. Fear the thumb against Alabama. They're going to happily send. Coach Tuberville to Washington as a United States senator. And my thinking is my thinking is that Alabama has just won so much under Nick Saban that they've forgotten about this. Um, otherwise, there's no explanation. But Tuberville looks like he'll be the next senator from the state of Alabama. You know, that is remarkable. Here's what's on my radar. I'm going to get a little nerdy. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know. See, I, I, you know, I, I don't even want to talk Penn State football. That's all I'm going to say. I used to cover that, and we that was many years ago. Uh, tech CEOs testifying before the Congressional Antitrust Panel. They're actually divided. They are divided about whether or not China is stealing technology. Google's saying that he could not think of a case where the Chinese government stole Google's technology. Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the committee, uh, he says that more businesses are moving online. Uh, That's not about China. Here it is. Back in 2010, Google pulled out of China after noting that it and 20 other U.S. companies were the victims of a sophisticated cyber attack originating from China. So... The Chinese sphere of influence still being discussed up on Capitol Hill. Hey, Joe Crowley, thank you. Make sure you check out the new live Bruce Springsteen album that just dropped. Um, This is my all... No, this is not Thunder Road, but this is... 
thought we, anyway, this is Bruce. I always play Bruce for Joe Crowley. My name is Sneed, Executive Vice President of that Faro Strategic Communications Firm in D.C. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Thank you to our guests, Ben Brody, Bloomberg's tech reporter. Get some rest. He's all over the hill. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.